So Neil Rapley is the research project manager at Book of Mormon Central and has published on the Book of Mormon in Interpreter, a journal of Mormon scriptures, presented at the 2014, 2016, and 2017 Book of Mormon conferences. He's also a longtime member of our Fair Mormon volunteer list. With that, we'd like to introduce Neil Rapley. Where do I point this to? Oh, there we go. Okay, good. Yep. <clears throat> In 1887, a cache of documents, uh, a cache of form tablets was discovered at Armarna, Egypt, dated to the mid-14th century BC. The collection primarily consisted of, of letters written by Canaanite rulers petitioning the pharaoh to aid them in their petty squabbles with neighboring cities, including six letters written by the king of Jerusalem. Based on these letters, Jerusalem at the time was a powerful regional capital ruling over a land or even multiple lands, controlling subsidiary towns, and was even powerful enough to seize the possession of towns belonging to, another, to rival cities. There was just one problem. There is no archaeological evidence for this Jerusalem. According to Marguerite Steiner, no trace has ever been found of any city that could have been the Jerusalem of the Amarna letters. And yet the letters are unquestionably authentic, and there is no doubt they mention Jerusalem. From this example, it is clear that, the, that uh, genuine historical documents are not always supported by the archaeological record. This exposes the weakness of arguments. Uh, predicated on the idea that if there is no archaeological evidence for something mentioned in the Book of Mormon, the book must be false. Such arguments rest on what I would consider a misunderstanding of both archaeology and written history and how the two relate to each other. Such misunderstandings tend to come naturally but can, but can be overcome by developing what historian and psychologist Sam Weinberg calls mature historical understanding. The Apostle Paul said, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. All of us have experienced the need to put away childish things in our lives as we learn, grow, and expand our horizons. How we think, understand, and talk about scripture and how it relates to history and archaeology is no exception to this. According to Sam Weinberg, Mature historical thinking is neither a natural process nor something that springs from autom uh, automatically from psychological development. Instead, it actually goes against the grain of how we ordinarily think. Writing in the late 1990s, Weinberg felt the odds of achieving mature historical understanding are stacked against us in a world in which Disney and MTV call the shots. Today, the world of Disney and MTV has given way to the world of Twitter, Snapchat, Facebook, Facebook, and Reddit platforms which foster shallow thinking and make mature historical thought that much more of an uphill battle. In conducting several case studies with students and teachers at all levels, Weinberg found that when confronted with difficult, strange, or challenging information about the past, people have a tendency to take it either at face value or to explain it by borrowing a context from their contemporary social world. Both of these approaches contextualize the past by importing the present, a fallacy known as presentism. Properly contextualizing documents and events from the past is a major part of mature historical thinking, but it is not easy. Contexts are not self-evident. They must be fashioned from raw materials. 
Weinberg explains contexts are neither found nor located, and words are not put into context. Context from the Latin contextere means to weave together, to engage in an active process of connecting things in a pattern. This is done by piecing together documents. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is done by piecing together information from historical sources. When dealing with and when dealing with ancient history and archaeology, it involves an artifact here, a ruin there, and literally hundreds of tiny fragments of pottery, none of which are self-explanatory. The pieces must then be brought together and with written sources, which are themselves incomplete and subjective representations of the past. As one Jewish biblical scholar explained, reconstructing the history of Israel is a complicated process. Evidence from the Hebrew Bible, from archaeology, and from extra-biblical sources must first be interpreted independently of each other and only then brought together and reinterpreted in order to create a more complete and better grounded picture. Uh, similarly, a pair of Mayan scholars noted that history is a... Is, a much con is as much a construction of those writing it as the events it proposes to record. And this is as true of the Maya as of any other civilization. Given that, public histories of the Maya, given that the public histories the Maya left behind are ne not necessarily the truth, we must use archaeology to provide complementary information of all sorts, some confirming the written record, some qualifying it. It is upon the pattern of conjunction and disjunction between these two records that we base interpretations of history. In some ways, this process is like putting together a large and complicated puzzle where you must first understand the individual pieces and then figure out how they fit together within the larger picture. Except when it comes to historical context, you don't have the complete picture on the box, you are missing most of the pieces, and the pieces you do have are often damaged and usually don't fit perfectly together. <clears throat> uh, when dealing with the Book of Mormon, the same process must be followed. A context for it must be fashioned by bringing together archaeological, historical, and other ancient sources to create a better grounded picture of Book of Mormon history, and all of this must be done with the limitations of our sources firmly in mind. With that said, what I'd like to do now is take us back to Jerusalem, um, but we are going to fast forward to the 7th century BC. This is the, this is the Jerusalem where Lehi grew up and was raised, and his family, uh, and in, uh, and raised his family. And Nephi's account in the Book of Mormon provides a series of direct and indirect clues about Jerusalem during this time. There's a rich array of archaeological data from this period that allows us to test the pro this process and see how we might create a better grounded picture of Lehi and his family uh, and his family's life and social setting. As Nephi describes it, Jerusalem was a great city surrounded by walls and many, including his own brothers, believed it could never be destroyed. Lehi and Laban were descendants of northern tribes that had lived their entire lives in Jerusalem and were wealthy and powerful members of, of the city's social elite. Laban was among the ranks of government or military officials and brandishing a sword of most precious steel and maintaining an archive at his house both, uh, of both family and official records kept on metal plates and written with Egyptian. Meanwhile, Lehi's family were wealthy uh, Jerusalem residents with some unexpected skill sets. First, we know they can write, an easy skill to overlook today, but usually a specialized skill in the ancient world. Second, they appear to have metallurgical knowledge and expertise, also, special, also a specialized skill known only to those who worked uh, metals professionally. But metalworking in antiquity is often seen as a lower class blue collar work, and you typically wouldn't expect metalsmiths to, know, uh, to also know how to read and write, nor a scribe to be able to make tools of ore. This is obviously only a brief summary, but there is enough here to stop now and ask, can a context be fashioned out of the raw materials of archaeology and its interpretation by professional scholars for this description of Jerusalem? Uh, so let's take a look. Uh, Marguerite Steiner uh, explained that based on current archaeology, uh, by the 7th century BC, Jerusalem had become what geographers call a primate city. Um, 
where all a city very much larger than all other settlements, where all economic, political, and social power is centralized. What's more, it was fortified by five to seven meter wide walls, which had been, uh, which had been built at the end of the 8th century BC. Jerusalem had indeed become a great city, and its walls no doubt provided a sense of security from external threats. Archaeology further indicates that this transformation uh, into one of the major cities of the known world was precipitated by a huge influx of refugees from the northern kingdom into Jerusalem. An extension of the city was uh, created to accommodate these refugees, and recent archaeological excavation in the area re revealed an impressively large Israelite home with several stamped seals, leading to the conclusion that members of Judah's social elite and, e and possibly even the ruling class of, of Judah's capital lived there around the 7th century BC. Thus, descendants of northern Israelites were indeed living in the city and were part of the upper class. In another dig among 7th century BC homes belonging to what may be called the elite of Jerusalem, archaeologists found a bronze workshop, including several pieces of bronze and iron, along with evidence of imported luxury goods in the home. Evidence from mines out in the desert near the Red Sea likewise confirmed that in the early 1st millennium BC, rather than armies of slaves in back-breaking labor, specialists are often accorded high social, uh, metalworking specialists are often accorded high social status. Skilled metalworkers at the time were working both copper and iron, and whether deliberately or not, carburizing iron into steel. Metallurgical analysis of a meter-long sword found near Jericho, 15 miles from Jerusalem, and dated to the end of the 7th century BC, indicated that the iron was deliberately hardened into steel, making it comparable to Laban's sword. Archaeology also indicates an increasing number of inscriptions and texts at this time, leading, art, leading many scholars to conclude that literacy was on the rise. Scientific analysis of writing samples from a military outpost in Judah concluded a significant number of literate individuals can be assumed to have lived in Ju Judah around 600 BC, and literary awareness was had by the lowest echelons of society. While the actual extent of literacy remains a hotly debated topic among scholars, many do agree that at least some high-status craftsmen in Jerusalem at this time could read and write. Craftsmen who worked with materials that could be used as writing medium, such as stonemasons, potters, and metalworkers, were particularly likely to develop some scribal skills. In fact, some of the earliest evidence for alphabetic writing in the region of Judah comes from journeyman metalsmiths and tangibly connects the crafts of scribe and metalworker. Steiner also discusses some evidence for increasing literacy at this time. While excavating 7th century BC homes likely belonging to wealthy artisans and traders, a single home yielded 51 clay impressions of stamped seals used to seal documents, which Steiner interpreted as the remains of an archive. Some archaeologists have interpreted it as a state archive, but its domestic setting suggests other, uh, to others that it was a private archive. In addition, letters found at the nearby city of Lachish dating to the early 6th century attest to the practice of keeping records in the homes of military officials. Both of these finds should remind us of Laban and his treasury. Of course, these records were not kept on metal, but many other records from the ancient Near East were, including the oldest surviving example of a biblical text. Oh, excuse me. Two small silver scrolls dated to the 6th to 7th century BC were found just outside Jerusalem with a version of Numbers 6, 24 through 26 inscribed on them. These short texts were of a, were of a very uh, different nature than the brass plates, but do nonetheless demonstrate that metallic epigraphy was practiced in Jerusalem in Lehi's day. Egyptian writing is also attested. 
Over 200 uh, texts utilizing Egyptian hieratic have been found in the regions of Israel and Judah, including several found right in Jerusalem, and many of these are dated to the 7th to 6th centuries BC. Most of these are short, fragmentary texts where hieratic numerals and measurements are mixed with Hebrew, but after carefully reviewing the samples from the late 7th century, David Calabro concluded that, hieratic, that the hieratic tradition in Judah lasted in fuller form than only the isolated use of numbers and units of measurement. Calabro felt that the evidence indicates a widespread presence of scribes educated in this Judite variety of Egyptian script. Of course, the picture is not perfect, and skeptics will no doubt find the holes and seek to exploit them, but don't forget what we learned from the Amarna letters. Archaeology does not always back up every little detail found in historical documents. Whatever pieces might still be missing, there's really no question that Nephi's Jerusalem fares a whole lot better than Amarna's, and no, question, and no one questions the authenticity of those letters. The point is that while once the pieces are put together, Nephi's Jerusalem is surprisingly believable, but we have to be willing to take the time to find the pieces, sort them out, and put them into place. It is my belief that although learning to read the Book of Mormon this way is difficult and takes time, it is worth the effort. I've personally found that when I approach the Book of Mormon with mature historical thinking and, uh, and understanding, it builds faith, accommodates questions, and deepens my understanding. Uh, drawing the work that I and others have done over the last two years at Book of Mormon Central, I'd like to offer just a few examples of what I mean by all of that. Um, when, the, when the context from archaeology and the details from the Book of Mormon converge, to use uh, archaeologist William Deaver's term, it can build faith and confidence that the Book of Mormon is a genuine historical record. I've actually already provided an example of this uh, by talking about Jerusalem. We usually don't think about the mention of Jerusalem in the Book of Mormon as being something that could be used to build faith or evidence because it's mentioned in the Bible, so it seems like it would be a given for Joseph Smith to get right. But as any ancient Near Eastern archaeologist can tell you, things mentioned in the Bible are hardly givens, uh, archaeologically speaking. We've already seen that Nephi's Jerusalem fares better than, than Amarna's, but you could argue that it does better than David's and Solomon's too. If Joseph's wife is to be trusted, he didn't even know Jerusalem had walls around it in Lehi's day, so the overall accurate picture of Jerusalem ought to count for something, especially since several of the details were once ridiculed by Joseph's critics. That Laban, Lehi, and the rest of his family can be so well contextualized can build faith that the story is being told from someone who was actually there in Jerusalem around 600 B.C. Uh, by now, most of you have pr uh, probably already heard about Nahum, often touted as the first actual archaeological evidence for the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Nahum was a place where Lehi's family buried Ishmael and then turned course nearly eastward until arriving in a rich and fertile land they called Bountiful. The first indication that we might actually be able to locate Nahum uh, on a map came in the late 1970s, when Ross T. Christensen noticed the mention of Nehem in Yemen, about 25 miles north of the capital of Sana'a, on an old 18th century German map of Arabia. Located only a little south of the route, then recently drawn by Lynn and Hope Hilton, Nehem was in the right general area, but it was uncertain whether it was there in Lehi's day. Further research revealed that Nehem, also spelled Naham or Nehem in various other ways, uh, was the land of the Nehem tribe, which had been there since at least early Islamic times. Then, in the late 1990s, S. Kent Brown noticed an altar from, the, from a temple site at Marib dated to the 6th to 7th centuries B.C., recording the dedicant of one Biathtar, whose grandfather was a Nehemite. Other are, uh, uh, two other identical inscriptions were subsequently found, and all three were later dated to a slightly earlier time period, close to 685 BC, placing its writing in a phase of construction around the 8th to 7th centuries BC. 
While this was the first archaeological evidence noticed by LDS scholars, subsequent research has revealed that several other first millennium BC inscriptions mentioning Nehemites or members of the Nehem tribe in the area west of Marib were already known to scholars of South Arabia. These inscriptions have led scholars to the conclusion that Nim uh, was in the same general area since BC times. Hence, Alexander Sima said that Biathar, the Nehemite, comes from the Nehem region west of Marib. Bukhard Vot noted that the Nehem tribe was at the time without doubt north of, north of Dwaf, today uh, northeast of uh, Sana'a. Peter Stein included NHM on a map providing an overview of places as well as other identifiable toponyms found in a collection of Sabian texts from, the later, from later BC to early AD times and identifies it with the modern Nehem region. Thus, scholars consistently locate the place of the Nehem tribe in approximately the same location going back to the first millennium BC. What's more, it's in the vicinity of Nehem that eastward travel becomes possible and nearly due east of Nehem is an inlet, um, an inlet along the coast which meets all the criteria for bountiful. When all the pieces are brought together, the name, the location, the antiquity, uh, attested in several inscriptions, the bountiful inlet, and the eastward turn, it creates a compelling context for this portion of Nephi's account in southern Arabia, which in turn can build faith that the Book of Mormon is an authentic historical document. The next most direct piece of evidence uh, comes from an artifact which may have belonged to Mulek, uh, the son of Zedekiah, who, according to the Book of Mormon, escaped the fate of his brothers and made it his way to a small, uh, with a small group to the Americas. Long thought to be uniquely attested to in the Book of Mormon, it turns out there may be a reference to Mulek in the Bible. During the final years of Zedekiah's reign, shortly before the Babylonians finally conquered Jerusalem, uh, Jeremiah was imprisoned in the dungeon of Malchiah, son of Hamalek, as it says in the King James Bible. More recent translations correct this to Malchiah, the king's son. And given the context, this Malchiah, or Malchiahu in Hebrew, was likely a contemporary son of King Zedekiah, according to Johann Aroni. In the, late in the 1990s, a stamp seal paleographically dated to the second half of the 7th or early 6th century BC turned up bearing the inscription belonging to Malkiahu, son of the king. Since the information about Malkiahu in both the Bible and this inscription is quite limited, an absolute identification remains uncertain, but one scholar considered this connection to be among those reasonable enough to invite assumption. If this, if this is indeed the same Malchiah that is mentioned in Jeremiah, this find may not only be another identification of a biblical person, but it might be the first known artifact belonging to a Book of Mormon person as well. Both Mulek and Malchiah are based on the same Hebrew root, and Mulek may be a short form of Malchiah, just as Mike is to Michael today. Learning of this possibility from LDS colleagues, David Noel Friedman thought, if Joseph Smith came up with that one, he did pretty good. Taken together, both the biblical reference and the stamp seal add context to Mulek that, was, uh, that can build faith in his reality as a, historical, uh, a real historical member of the royal family in Lehi's time. Uh, now, this next example is less direct, but more uh, concrete. <laughs> Pardon me. Uh, Mormon described uh, extensive cement working beginning around 50 BC in a place far to the north of Nephite homeland. The people there built cement homes and even whole cities made from wood and cement despite the fact that the region suffered from severe de deforestation and they had to supplement their small natural timber supply uh, by having lumber shipped from other regions. Notwithstanding early 19th century reports of Peruvian cement from Alexander von Humboldt, currently the only pre-Columbian cement found by archaeologists is in Mesoamerica. In 1839, John Lloyd Stevens observed cement at several 
of the Maya site, uh, at several of the Maya cities he visited, but little was known about its use, composition, and antiquity and development until late, the later half of the 20th century. Now, Mesoamerican use of limestone-based cement from very ancient times is well documented. Non-structural lime plasters and stuccos were used as early as 1100 BC, and through the late pre-classic period, the thickness and quality of plasters increased, and Maya builders made improvements in mixing techniques. According to Michael Coe and Stephen Houston, during this time period, the lowland Maya quickly realized the structural value of a concrete-like fill made from limestone, rubble, and marl, contributing to an explosion of building activity around 100 BC in the northern Paten. In the Valley of Mexico, fully developed cement appeared at Teotihuacan from seemingly out of nowhere in the first century AD. By AD 300, most inhabitants at Teotihuacan lived in, in substantial plaster and concrete compounds composed of multiple apartments. Concrete, says one scholar, is an encounter is encountered in all Teotihuacan constructions of every epoch. It has also been noted by Nigel Davis that this excessive use of timber in Teotihuacan denuded the hills and led to soil erosion. Large quantities of wood were needed in the production of cement, and wooden beams were used to support uh, roofs as well as being at the center of columns, pillars, and door lintels. Indeed, Teotihuacan and other cities in the region uh, were, uh, were certainly cities made of wood and cement. And because I know Brant Gardner might give me grief later, I should maybe clarify to everyone, that is not Teotihuacan you're seeing. That's El Mirador. Uh, but I couldn't find a good image uh, reconstructing Teotihuacan with the wooden constructions and, and whatnot at the top. So I wanted you to see cement and wood in, in the picture. Um, Overall, Mormon's report in Helaman 3 turns out to be a highly realistic account in the context of structural cement spreading through Mesoamerica in the first centuries BC AD, with cities emerging in northern Mesoamerica made extensively from wood and cement in a region largely deforested by Mormon's day. This realistic setting can build faith in the Book of Mormon. Uh, faith that the Book of Mormon provides authentic information about pre-Columbian America, just as Joseph Smith claimed it did. It is important to keep in mind, though, uh, that this process is not about proving the Book of Mormon or any other historical work is true. Rather, as quoted earlier, it's about gaining a better grounded picture, a process that will sometimes confirm, but other times qualify what our written record says, or at least how we interpret it. To do this, we must be able to acknowledge that our current understanding is deficient. It is hard to improve our understanding when we think, we all, when we think we've already got it all figured out. We are trying to mature our understanding, and to mature is to change and to develop and to grow, and growing comes with growing pains. Sometimes information from the past is jarring. Weinberg warns that mature historical cognition does not just engage the mind, but is also an act that engages the heart. This is all the more so with the Book of Mormon, when not only historical facts, but our faith is often on the line. Persistent questions raised by apparent contradictions in the archaeological context can seem devastating. Weinberg found that mature historical thinkers displayed patience with the unknown. They were able to call attention to apparent contradictions without immediately seeking to resolve them. This was often uncomfortable, but mature historical thinkers sat with this discomfort as they continued to review additional sources. As they did this, they exercised what Weinberg called the specification of ignorance, which is simply the practice of identifying when you don't know enough to understand something. This is then followed by cultivating puzzlement, being able to stand back from first impressions, to question quick leaps of mind, and to keep track of questions that together pointed in the direction of new learning. When approached this way, inconsistencies become opportunities for exploring our discontinuity with the past. Or, as Hugh Nibley put it, 
Every paradox and anomaly is really a broad hint that new knowledge is awaiting us if we will only go after it. When it comes to the Book of Mormon, some of the most persistent questions pertain to anachronistic plants, animals, and technology. But these anachronisms may be a product of how we read the Book of Mormon in the first place. Weinberg notes, trying to reconstruct a world we cannot completely know may be the difference between contextualized and anachronistic reading of the past. Rather than letting questions drive us to anachronistic readings and immediate premature dismissals, the patience of mature historical thought can allow us to use questions to create contexts which accommodate them and lead to greater learning. Um, an important first step in this process goes back to the point I made at the beginning of the presentation. Not everything mentioned in written sources gets verified by archaeology. Scholars of the ancient world value inscriptions and other written sources precisely because they can speak to us more directly than pot shards and crumbled walls ever will. Right? Uh, requiring a written source to conform to what is presently known through archaeology thus strips it of the very thing that gives written sources their value in the first place. The problem is compounded by the fact that archaeology is a moving target. Archaeologists don't just dig into the ground and suddenly know everything about the past. Instead, archaeology is an ongoing process and much work remains to be done. Just among the Maya, archaeologists estimate that only 1-5% to of all sites have been excavated, leading late jo uh, the late George Stewart to conclude, we don't know squat. The implications of this should be obvious. With 95 plus percent of known Maya sites to say nothing of the rest of Mesoamerica unexcavated, there's no telling what may yet be found. All the archaeological data that I've already mentioned was at some point missing and unavailable, and thus context that can now be fashioned couldn't have been created any earlier than the late 20th century. In terms of what this means for anachronisms, consider barley. Since at least 1887, barley has been frequently included on lists of, anachron of anachronistic plants mentioned in the Book of Mormon. In 1983, however, Daniel B. Adams reported that salvage archaeologists found preserved grains of what looks like domesticated barley at a Hohokam site near Phoenix, Arizona, dated to A.D. 900. The grain was an indigenous American species known as little barley. And although it was the first ever uh, found in the New World, cultivated specimens of little barley have since been identified at several pre-Columbian sites, mostly in the eastern United States. Uh, oh, excuse me. Uh, though extensive archaeological evidence also points to the cultivation of little barley in the southwest and parts of Mexico, and possibly even Cuba. Little barley's exact cultivation and domestication history remains debated, but today scholars generally agree that it was among the major cultivated crops in the eastern United States by 200 BC. Some will protest that it's not true old world barley, but nothing in the Book of Mormon requires such a deliberate, a, del deliberately anachronistic reading. Discoveries like Little Barley are exactly why archaeologist John E. Clark warns negative items may prove to be positive ones in hiding. Missing evidence focuses further research, but it lacks compelling logical force and arguments because it represents the absence of information rather than secure evidence. Clark documented that the long-term trend in, archeo in archaeological data has been towards verification of Book of Mormon claims. This long-term trend toward verification, along with the overall limitations of current archaeological knowledge, provides a context in which we can patiently accommodate questions remaining about remaining anachronisms. While awaiting further information from archaeology, there are other ways to accommodate unconfirmed details through contextual rather than anachronistic readings. For instance, there are numerous historical examples of explorers and settlers encountering new plant and animal species, um, just as Lehi and his family would have as they settled in the New World. Such encounters inevitably create linguistic problems, and one of the most common solutions to this problem is called loan shifting which, according to Lawrence B. Kittle, means to give the animal of the, uh, 
to give the name of, uh, of to give the animal the name of a familiar animal, which the received speakers believe it resembles. Uh, the most effective way I've found to illustrate loan shifting is through the simple question: Which one of these animals is a buffalo? Most American audiences, uh, people usually point to the one on the right, but that is technically a bison. The true buffalo is on the left. Early French and English explorers and settlers had never seen a bison before and thus lacked a proper term for it. So they borrowed, or loan shifted, the name of an animal already familiar to them, buffalo. Obviously, the name is stuck, despite the fact that scientists have ruled it taxonomically incorrect. Um, other examples of loan shifting from European contact with the Americas include uh, the robin, originally the name of a European bird species, and elk, which means moose in most of the rest of the world today. Europeans coming to the New World were not the only ones who struggled with, uh, to label new species. The introduction of Old World animals into the New, such as horses and cattle, also created labeling problems for Native Americans, and terms for widely different species, such as deer, tapirs, and most commonly dogs, were loan shifted to horses by various cultures throughout the Americas. Among these, noted anthropologist and linguist Cecil Brown, horse is the most closely related to tapir, so this naming association is understandable. Brown was surprised, however, by how frequently Native Americans used dog for horse. From a common sense perspective, one might expect that Amerindians would typically have analyzed dog as being least similar to horse because of its relatively small size. Nonetheless, terms for dog are considerably more commonly extended to horse than our, than our labels for other more horse-like in size creatures. From this, it is clear that the specific associations made in various loan shifts are not always obvious or what would appear to outsiders as the most logical. Once those shifts are made, however, they often stick for several generations, as evidenced by the fact that we're still using several uh, from the early post-Columbian period, four to 500 years ago, as our Native Americans. In fact, many common names for animals, as well as plants and even objects, are loan shifts from made long ago and now widely accepted without any awareness of what they originally meant. For instance, Hippopotamus is a Greek term meaning horse of the river, uh, which came into use as early as the 5th century BC and continues to be used today, despite the fact that hippos are obviously not horses. Considering Lehi and his family uh, arriving in the New World with his widely attested practice in mind, they could have applied their Old World terms for ox, cow, horse, and goat to indigenous species found in the forests of the Promised Land. Although the idea is frequently mocked online, if Lehi and his family were real people, then we should expect them to act the way real people have historically acted in similar situations. Understanding this common practice thus creates a context that can accommodate questions about horses as well as other old world plant and animal names mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Now, another thing to keep in mind uh, is that the Book of Mormon is a translation, and translations are so sometimes create anachronisms or at least misunderstandings that were not there in the original text. The King James Bible, for example, frequently mentions candles and candlesticks, yet ancient Jews and Israelites did not use candles, but rather oil lamps. Thus, more contemporary translations properly use lamps and lampstands. Although not strictly an anachronism in the biblical world, the use of chariot in the King James rendering of Song of Solomon 3.9 is another example where the translation may create a misunderstanding. The Hebrew word here is afirion, which uh, I pronounced kind of Frenchish there. I don't know why I did that which actually refers to a litter or palanquin, uh, which is an enclosed uh, couch carried by bearers. This interesting bit of trivia may be relevant to references to chariots in the Book of Mormon. 
Although late 19th century French archaeologist Desiree Charnay actually reported finding chariots in Mexico, these were merely toys or figurines. No chariot-like wheeled vehicle has yet been found in pre-Columbian America, but litters or palanquins like that mentioned in the Song of Solomon were known and widely used for royal visits in Mesoamerica as early as the late pre-classic period. Although such a chariot would not be drawn by horses, it is important to notice that neither are the chariots in the Book of Mormon ever described as being pulled by horses, but are simply prepared with horses. In my art, from the classic period at least, an animal, often a dog, is frequently depicted as traveling near the litter as part of the entourage, thus, including, uh, thus indicating that both animal and royal litter would need to be prepared uh, and may, would need to be made ready for a royal visit. The chariots of Lamoni are twice made ready for occasions not unlike those in which royal litters would be used to conduct the king forth in Mesoamerica. Understanding the Book of Mormon in the context of translations with the difficulties and imprecisions that all translations come with can thus accommodate the mention of chariots, but it creates a considerably different picture than what we're used to envisioning. Uh, the mention of horses and chariots together brings the image of horse-drawn wheeled vehicles so naturally to our minds, it seems obvious that this must be what the text is referring to, even if the horses are never said to be pulling the chariots explicitly. But to paraphrase Lieutenant Megan Donner on an episode of CSI Miami, the problem with the obvious is it can make you overlook the evidence. Weinberg noticed the same tendency in some of his case studies. After reviewing primary source accounts describing the Battle of Lexington, for instance, students and historians uh, were shown different artistic depictions of, of the event and asked to select the picture that best reflected the written evidence. One student, who made very astute observations while reading the written accounts, nonetheless chose the image that most reflected his own modern notions of battlefield propriety and justified that choice uh, based on modern combat rationales while dismissing the more accurate image as ludicrous. What was obvious and natural to this late 20th century student, however, was actually at odds with 18th century military decorum, yet even direct engagement with the evidence couldn't overcome his deeply held assumptions about battlefield behavior. My point here is that obviousness depends on context. The, passage, the, the past sometimes is very strange, and what might seem ludicrous to us may very well be obvious to someone living in a different time and place. To us, the idea that horse and chariot might refer to anything besides a horse-drawn wheeled vehicle might seem absurd. Yet to, to a Nephite living in Mesoamerica in the first century BC, the use of the terms translated as horse and chariot might appear to be a rather obvious reference to a royal litter accompanied by a dog or another animal. This is a very different picture than what we're used to, and not everyone may be entirely comfortable with it. Yet, as I explained earlier, developing mature historical understanding will require us to sit with our discomfort as we learn to allow the context we fashion to change and expand our understanding. And I want to be clear, though, that I'm not saying that the horse and chariot of the Book of Mormon absolutely is a dog and royal litter. I'm merely seeking to illustrate some of the different ways mature, uh, mature contextual approaches can accommodate persisting questions about Book of Mormon claims. The principles discussed here can be applied to currently missing plants, animals, and technologies, while always keeping in mind the limited nature of archaeology and, and the possibility of future finds. Speaking of the Bible, one pair of scholars remarked, the trend of archaeological discovery is to confirm even points that opinion had rejected as false. As already dis discussed, John Clark has identified a similar trend with the Book of Mormon. Horses and chariots may yet conform to this trend. There's already some ambiguous and unclear evidence for pre-Columbian horses, and the presence of wheeled figurines uh, demonstrates at the very least that the principle of using wheels 
to facilitate horizontal movement was familiar to at least some peoples in pre-Columbian Mesoamerica. While patiently awaiting further discovery, however, it is valuable to consider other contextual approaches and grow more comfortable with different interpretive possibilities. But I don't recommend spending too much time dwelling on what we're missing. There's far too much already available from archaeology and other disciplines that not only builds faith, but also enriches and deepens our understanding. Beyond waiting and weighing possibilities, uh, uh, possible answers to difficult questions, I recommend diving in to what we already know to see what new things there are to learn about the Book of Mormon and, consequently, the gospel principles it teaches. A basic example of this is Jacob 5. Uh, this chapter comprise, comprises of an extended allegory about olive cultivation, and it's the longest chapter in all the Book of Mormon, which is kind of a curious detail since olives uh, don't grow in New York, uh, but they are ubiquitous in the ancient Near East and Mediterranean region. As an allegory in the last days, it is imperative for us to understand it well, and one way to do that is to dig into botanical science and ancient horticultural practices going back into the allegory's ancient roots to gain greater context. Scholars and scientists have done just that, and, in their efforts have, and their efforts have yielded a rich harvest. One of the more interesting insights comes in relation to grafting wild branches into a domesticated or tame tree. In Jacob 5, after initial effort to save the decaying tree fails, the master has wild branches grafted into it seemingly as a last-ditch effort. Miraculously, the tree begins to bear fruit, and the servant observes, because thou didst graft in branches of the wild olive tree, they have nourished the roots, and they are alive, and they have not perished. Botanist Wilford Hess stressed that olive growers normally use wild olive grafts only to rejuvenate domesticated or tame trees. In such circumstances, due to the vigor and disease resistance of certain wild species, grafting wild stock into a tame tree can strengthen and revitalize a distressed plant. This is, of course, exactly why the wild grafts are done in Jacob 5, and the results are precisely that of a rejuvenated tree. But what I would like to point out is that this is something not, an olive grower would not just do on an annual basis. It's a last resort. It's a desperate move made by when all else has failed. The message seems clear. The Lord will stop at nothing to reclaim his lost fruit. And don't forget that that fruit is us. The important con this important context deepens our understanding of the great lengths Heavenly Father will go to in order to reclaim his lost children, even resorting to unconventional, desperate, and perhaps even counterintuitive methods if he has to. This year, to go along with the Gospel Doctrine curriculum, the Church published a manual called Revelations in Context, which includes essays discussing the historical setting of various Doctrine and Covenants sections. Revelatory experiences in the Book of Mormon can also be contextualized, and doing so can deepen our appreciation for the doctrines revealed, but can also teach us something about the very nature of Revelation itself. The very first vision in the Book of Mormon is that of Lehi, where he sees God on his throne, surrounded by angelic hosts. Several scholars have illustrated that, that the sequence of events here fits the prophetic call patterns found in biblical and non-biblical uh, ancient Near Eastern sources. Nephi's vision upon a high mountain is likewise consistent with ancient Near Eastern patterns. Thus, analysis of these revelations predictably benefits from context fashioned from the biblical world. King Benjamin's revelation from an angel around 128 BC, shared during a festival occasion where sacrifices mandated by the law of Moses were performed, naturally becomes more interesting in light of rituals associated with the Israelite festival occasions. Specifically, the sprinkling of blood, uh, the blood of a bull and goat seven times to purify san uh, the sanctuary and the people from sin on the Day of Atonement creates a vivid context for the angel's revelation that the blood of Christ atoneth for sins, with blood repeated seven times in the course of Benjamin's speech. There were festival occasions in Mesoamerica as well, and their rituals could be every bit as bloody. 
In addition to animal and human sacrifices, the king himself, endowed with a, endowed with a divine or at least semi-divine status, often performed a bloodletting ritual where the kings voluntarily shed their blood as an offering on behalf of their people. By piercing, by piercing a sensitive part of his body and letting his blood spill out, the king would open up a conduit between the natural and supernatural realm, though through which the divine beings would appear in vision, communicating sacred knowledge, especially about future events and portents. King Benjamin denied having any kind of special or divine status, and by so doing, implicitly denied any efficacious power of his own blood. Yet without bloodletting, he still interacted with a divine being who revealed sacred knowledge about the future, telling Benjamin, there will be a future king, a future divine king, whose blood will have power, and he won't just bleed from one part of his body, but will bleed from every pore. Benjamin's revelation thus invokes both Israelite and Mesoamerican conceptions of blood sacrifice and would have had quite the impact in its original ritual setting. Mark Wright noticed that about a generation after Benjamin or so, a new pattern for revelation emerges. Unlike Lehi, Wright noticed prophets and others from Alma the Younger's time did not receive their commission according to an ancient Near Eastern pattern. Rather, the calls conform to a pattern that can be detected in ancient Mesoamerica. Among the contemporary Maya, according to Bruce Love, most Maya shamans report being called through divine intervention, either through dreams, being miraculously saved, or through near-death experiences. Ethnographic work by Frank Lipp indicates divine election occurs within a context of some physical or emotional crisis. During the initiatory dream vision, the individual may experience temporary insanity or unconsciousness and a death experience, whereupon he or she is reborn as a person with shamanic power and knowledge. Wright compares this to the experience of various Book of Mormon prophets, with Alma the Younger as the primary example of this pattern. Falling to the earth unconscious for multiple days while his father and other priests gather together and fast and pray over his body, Alma eventually awakens, born of God and both spiritually and physically healed. From that time forward, Alma frequently displayed prophetic knowledge and power. This shouldn't necessarily be taken to suggest that Alma and others participated in all shamanic practices and rituals, but merely point out how the Lord may have used the expectations of the Nephites' cultural environment when calling his prophets among them. Wright also notes another subtle way Mesoamerica culture may be reflected in divine communication to the uh, to Book of Mormon peoples. It's important to realize that while some early prophets had had seen crucifixion and vision, generally speaking, that is not a form of death or punishment that would have been familiar to Book of Mormon people. Nonetheless, the sacrifice of a human being was the peak of Mesoamerican ritual, and the Nephites would have been aware of such cultural practices, perhaps even participating in them during periods of apostasy. While there were a number of, well, there were a number of different, different ways such sacrifices would be performed, one of the more common techniques was for a priest to make a large incision directly below the, the rib cage, and while the victim was yet alive, thrust his hand into the cut and reach up under the rib cage and into the chest and rip out the victim's still beating heart. Uh, gruesome, I know. That's Mark Wright's words, not mine. Don't blame me for that. Wright thus proposes, to a people steeped in Mesoamerican culture, the sign that a person had been ritually sacrificed would have been an incision in their side, suggesting that they had their hearts removed. When Christ appears to Book of Mormon peoples at Bountiful, in contrast to his old world appearances, he bade them first to thrust their hands into his side and secondarily to feel the prints in his hands and feet. The difference is subtle, but for his audience, it may have been insignificant. The wound in his side may have been the most effective way to communicate to Mesoamerican onlookers that he had been sacrificed on their behalf. 
While considering each of these instances individually can serve to deepen one's understanding of the Book of Mormon, there is a larger point that can be made, which is summed up by Nephi. The Lord speaketh unto men according to their understanding, uh, uh, according to their language, under their understanding. Wright correctly argues that language and culture are intrinsically linked, and thus speaking according to the understanding of one's audience requires cultural adaptation as much as it does linguistic accommodation. By observing how Book of Mormon modes of revelation diverge from biblical patterns and converge with Mesoamerican ones, we gain a deepened understanding of what it really means to, for the Lord to adapt his message to his people's understanding in all times and in all circumstances. This can, in turn, help us better appreciate why the Lord may have communicated with Joseph Smith, for instance, in ways that seem strange or odd to us today, as well as helping us be more perceptive to how the Lord is speaking to us in the here and now. Recognizing that the Lord communicates to us within cultural expectations also begins to address why developing a mature, contextualizing approach to the Book of Mormon and, of course, other scriptural works is so important. If context matters to the Lord, it ought to matter to us. In the brief time that I've had, I've tried to sketch out what it really means to approach the Book of Mormon with mature historical thought and illustrate uh, the benefits I see in such an approach. I do want to be clear, though, that I'm not, I am in no way meaning to suggest or imply that everyone who takes a mature historical approach will reach the same conclusions I have, nor that everyone who disbelieves does so for immature reasons. All I'm saying is that such an approach can build a more sustainable and rewarding faith in the Book of Mormon, one which is less vulnerable to the most common attacks made against it today, uh, online and in other venues. Um, and to just wrap up really quickly, I want to acknowledge that I know this can seem overwhelming, and you might be thinking, I don't have time to study the Book of Mormon this way, or whatever the case may be. Uh, so with that, I just want to offer maybe a few uh, pointers or suggestions. Uh, the first one is to just take your time. Scriptural and gospel study is supposed to be a lifetime pursuit, and developing a mature approach to scripture study is less about how much you know, and more about having the hum humility to know when you need to learn more, and then patiently seeking to do so. Second is to maximize your time. You don't necessarily need to study longer, but you may need to make more of an effort when you do study. Whether you have an hour or just 15 minutes each day, you can maximize that time better by doing more than start just staring at the words on the page. Uh, even by just taking a few minutes of that time and reading up on some background and context can make a big difference in your uh, understanding of your reading of the scriptures. And then just lastly, utilize tools such as, sorry, shameless plug, Book of Mormon Central. Uh, and Fair Mormon, of course. Our goal here is to try and make this easier for you by bringing, uh, I'm speaking specifically of Book Mormon Central, but everybody too, uh, by bringing all the resources on the Book of Mormon into one place, summarizing them and synthesizing them, uh, the best of that material into our Know Why articles, and producing multimedia content that makes it easier to understand. Ultimately, putting away childish things will require, as Paul said, learning how to think about, understand, and talk about the Book of Mormon in new ways. While this may be difficult at times, based on my own experience, I'm confident doing so can build faith, accommodate, and even eventually resolve questions and deepen understanding and, uh, and deepen your understanding and appreciation of our keystone scripture. Thank you. Uh, the first question is, why would uh, dog horses not be translated as dogs? Um, you know, that goes into all kinds of stuff on translation theory that I'm not interested in speculating on at this point. Uh, like I said, I'm just trying to propose some possibilities. I'm not saying horses are dogs. I'm just saying, you know, these are some of the, you know, why did Native Americans so f persistently associate dogs with horses? I don't know. You'd have to study it and, and maybe come up with your own answers. 
Nope, just some blank ones. Uh, someone else pointed out, I guess is, is the point here, that uh, the bison to buffalo shift is also similar to the fact that we call Native Americans Indians, which they obviously aren't people from India. So, uh, good point. Uh, I don't see a question here. Long comment. Okay, great. Um, uh, the question is, what new evidence is found about uh, animals in the Book of Mormon? Is the discovery of the origin of camels in Middle North America helping? Uh, the, I don't see the Book of Mormon ever mentioning camels unless I've missed something. So I'm not sure, but, but it does maybe help in just the sense that we're always learning more and more about uh, the history of our world and where animals came from or where they were and when they weren't there. And so you just, you never, like I said, you got to just always keep an open mind to what new things could be found. Um, if you're interested in animals in the Book of Mormon, though, uh, there's a book uh, by Wade Miller on the topic. I'm pretty sure it's in the bookstore. Um, uh, what is uh, the question is, what evidence leads me to say the brass plates were engraved, engraved in Egyptian? Mosiah 1.4 basically says they were. So uh, that's, that's the evidence. Thank you very much. <laughs>